have you ever watched the sun set over the sea? Of course you have. We live in Lebanon. We've all seen the sunset set over the Mediterranean, and it's beautiful. The colors that appear based on the clouds and the pollution is amazing. We see reds and oranges and yellows and pinks and purples, and it just makes you stand in awe and wonder. A sunrise is similar, but in reverse. In fact, I tend to prefer sunrises. I remember when I used to work at an office in Houston, Texas, our office had a location where you could stand and see the sun rise over the city. And I would just, I would actually, I would get to work before the sunrise. This isn't why, but I would get there before the sunrise, and I would set a timer five minutes before the sun rose, and I would go and I would stand in the spot, and I would just watch the city come to life as the sun dawned upon it and brought light where there was darkness. Either way, whether it's a sunrise or a sunset, I always try to stop and just watch in amazement because God has created something so beautiful that it should capture our attention. Today in Psalm 19, we're going to see how God reveals his glory in many ways so that we would know him and worship him. Today's sermon is going to be broken up into four parts. The heavens reveal God's glory. The word of God reveals God's glory. Jesus reveals God's glory. And then our response to God's revelation. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come to you today humble, ready to receive from you. Please speak to us and speak through me. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to start with our first point, which is the heavens reveal God's glory. This is verses 1 through 6. Let's get started. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day they pour out speech. Night after night they communicate knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words. Their voice is not heard. Their message has gone out to the whole earth, and their words to the ends of the world. We're going to stop right there. This is amazing. Just sit in the, the wonder of this psalm. He starts by saying that the heavens declare God's glory. What does he mean by heavens? He means the sky. What you look at when you look up outside, not in here. Outside, he means the sky, the sun, the moon, the stars, the things that fill our atmosphere. That is the heavens. He's not talking about where, where we uh, say God dwells in heaven with angels floating around. No, no, he's, he's talking about what we can see with our eyes declares God's glory. And maybe more importantly is to define what is glory. Well, in this psalm, it uses parallelism where the first line defines the second line. And so the glory of God is the work of his hands. What God has done, his creation is his glory. That's still kind of vague, though, so I'm going to turn to John Piper, who has thought and written much about God's glory, to give us a definition. And Piper says, The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. Now, I know that doesn't help, because it's just like a bunch of jumbled words. So we're going to break it down. God's infinite beauty and greatness. So the word glory is, is like the word beauty. You can't touch it. You can't say, this is the definition but when you know it, when you see it, you know it. And so God has infinite beauty 
an infinite greatness. He is so great, we can't even number it. And at the same time, this beauty and this greatness shows God's manifold perfections, or the way that God is perfect in many different ways. Now again, this is, it's weighty, it's heavy, it's not something we can grasp with our hands, but we need to understand is the glory of God is the visible nature of God's beauty and his goodness. Here, the psalm is saying that creation proves the creator. By looking at the work of God's hands, we know that God has made it. Let me give you an example. My brother-in-law, Luke, is a master craftsman. If you give him a piece of wood, a piece of metal, or anything leather, he will make something amazing with it. And he has decided that he wants to build his own house with his own hands. And he's doing it. Now, in the States, we build our houses out of wood. And so my brother-in-law, Luke, um, went and cut down his own trees. He felled dozens of trees, cut them to size himself, and now has pieced his house together like a Lego set. He didn't even use glue or screws or nails. He fit his wood together perfectly so that it would support itself. It's amazing. It's amazing to even think about and even more amazing to witness. Now, it would be foolish to walk by that house and say, wow, look at how these trees fell together in such a way that it looks like a house. That would, be, that would be foolish. That would be ignorant. We know that the trees did not fall down together, shave off their bark, cut into nice right angles, and fit together to build a house. It would be offensive, even, to my brother-in-law to say, look at that house. It built itself. How much more should we look at God's creation and know that he has created it? And so the author here, David, could have spoken of any part of creation speaking of God's glory. He could have said, go stand on the seashore and see how vast and wide the ocean is. Hear the roar of the waves and know that the sea declares the glory of God. Or he could have told us to take a hike in a forest and stop and see the diversity of trees and plants the different animals and crawling things, to hear the wind in the trees and to hear the birds singing and know that the forest declares the glory of God. This is true. All of creation declares God's glory. But David here focuses on the heavens. Why? Well, because the heavens are observable in the whole world. Not everywhere in the world can you go walk through a forest. Not everywhere in the world can you stand on the seashore and watch the vastness of the sea. But wherever you are in the world, you can look up and see the sky above. You can study the stars. You can feel the warmth of the sun on your face. And so the heavens declare God's glory to the whole world. And notice here that David says that the heavens speak without actually speaking. The heavens, of course, have no vocal cords. They do not make words that are intelligible for us to hear and understand, and yet their message has gone out to the whole world. We observe God's glory in the heavens. And so David gives us a specific example in the sun. 
Let's look at the last part of verse 4 through the end of verse 6. In the heavens, he, that is God, has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming from his home. It rejoices like an athlete running a course. It rises from one end of the heavens and circles to the other end. Nothing is hidden from its heat. This is stunning. Now, this isn't literal. It's poetry, guys. It's not astronomy. He's not teaching the circuits of the planets. He's saying what we observe and how it makes him feel. Now, a tent for the sun, what is that? It's saying that God has made a place where the sun dwells. God set the sun where he did, and it does not go away from where he has put it. God controls the sun. And he says that he comes out like a bridegroom leaving his home. Now, we're not sure if this is a groom who is leaving his home to go get married with a zephyr around him, or if this is a groom leaving his home after the wedding. But either way, he's full of joy. Either way, the groom leaving his home is radiant and beaming full of joy, just like the sun when it rises from the horizon, full of joy and energy. He likens the sun to an athlete who runs his course, who finishes his course with strength. It's like an Olympic runner who runs as hard as he can to finish the race, and he does not slow down, he does not stop, but makes it to the end. And that's how the sun is. We know that every day it rises and it sets. It's on a course, and we know that the, we, can, we can time it. I can tell you what time the sun, I can't tell you right now, I'll have to look it up, but we can know when the sun will rise and when it will set. And so from sunrise to sunset, the heavens reveal God's glory. And specifically, the heavens reveal that there is a creator God. But that's not enough. That's not enough for us in that we can't look at the clouds and know of God's righteousness. We can't look at the moon and know that we are sinners. There is more. While the heavens declare that there is a creator God, the word of God reveals God's glory. Let's look at verses 7 through 11, starting with the first three verses. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. Now, in Hebrew poetry, we don't always get to feel the poetic nature of it. There's not rhymes because it's translated, and it's not this kind of rhythm that we feel. But in these verses, we can feel a rhythm, right? We can see a repetition in the structure. The blank of the Lord is blank. The blank of the Lord is blank. You see that repetition, and what that goes to show is, one, that it's important. Whenever the Bible repeats anything for us, it needs to, it's like a, getting a highlighter, circling it, bolding it. This is important. Pay attention. And the fact that he uses different words to repeat this shows the diversity of what he's trying to say. So let me summarize what I think these three verses are trying to say, is that the word of God 
is good and beautiful, and it transforms people. The word of God is good and beautiful, and it transforms people. Where do I get that from? Well, he uses six different words to describe what I'm calling the word of God. He calls them instruction, testimony, precepts, command, fear, and ordinances. These are all saying the same thing with different words. They're all called to point us to the fact that this is God's word. This is God's word for us. He says that it is good and beautiful using eight different words. It is perfect, trustworthy, right, radiant, pure, reliable, enduring forever, and altogether righteous. Look at what David thinks of God's word. It is good. It is beautiful. We could spend a whole sermon talking about each of these words, how God's word is perfect, how God's word is right, how it is pure. In fact, the longest chapter of the Psalms and of the whole Bible is Psalm 119, where almost every single verse commends the beauty and goodness of God's word. If you have three hours, you can go read it. No, I'm kidding. It'll probably take you like 20 minutes. Um, but it transforms one's life. So the word of God transforms one's life in four different ways, according to David. Of course, there's more. It renews one's life. It makes the inexperienced wise. It makes the heart glad. And it makes the eyes light up. It's transforming for those who submit themselves to it. David wants us to see how glorious God's word is. Now, I use that word glorious because, remember, we define it as goodness, greatness, and beauty. And that's what we're seeing here, is that David sees that God's word is glorious. And he's making the connection from the first part to this part, and that if creation shows that there is a creator God, how much more do the words of God show that there is a glorious God? So if his words are glorious, how much more is he? But not only should we see his glory, David goes on in the psalm in verse 10 to say we should desire it. They, that is the commands, the precepts, the instructions, they are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, and sweeter than honey dripping from the honeycomb. You see, desire for wealth drives a lot of people. People will do a lot of different things to make money maybe even crazier or, or dangerous things just to make some money. But here we are commended to desire God's word more than wealth. Where if I gave you a pile of gold or whatever your equivalent of gold is, and I gave you the word of God, David is saying that we should choose the word of God every single time. Every single time. The sweetness of honey represents the pleasures of life, the things that make life sweet and desirable. But God's word is the greatest pleasure that we should pursue. Everything else bows down to the sweetness that we have when we encounter God's word. So let me ask, do you desire God's word? How much? Or another way is, what do you desire more than God's word? Wealth, pleasure, something else? Let me encourage you 
that as you sit in God's word longer and longer, you begin to desire his word more and more. We don't stop there, though. It's not just about desire. There is a level of obedience that is required as we encounter God's word. Let's look at verse 11 together. In addition, your servant is warned by them, and in keeping them, there is an abundant reward. You see, desiring God's word is good and necessary, but we must learn from it and obey it. Here it says that abundant reward comes from keeping God's word. We don't simply become wise by wanting to be wise. We become wise by reading the word of God and doing what it says. Our heart is not made glad simply by reading, but by believing what the word of God says. Now this is where we find ourselves with a problem. We need to keep God's word but we can't. On our own, we are incapable of keeping God's word. You see, the the word of God shows how good God is, but by itself, it doesn't make us good. In fact, God's word shows us how evil we really are. So before we move on, let me just give a recap. We've seen that the, the heavens reveal there is a creator God, And it's the word of God that reveals that he is good and beautiful. But we can't access this goodness because we have sin. And that leads us to our next point, that Jesus reveals God's glory. In John chapter 1, verse 14, John tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observe his glory the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So if the word of God reveals God's glory, how much more when the word puts on flesh and comes among us is God revealing his glory to us? That's what John says here, is that the word of God, that is Jesus, became flesh so that we would see God's glory. In Hebrews 1, as Pastor Marwan preached a few weeks ago, it says that God spoke through the prophets long ago, but now he speaks through his Son. And who is his Son? His Son is the radiance of God's glory. That is the essence of of what God's glory is. So seeing Jesus is seeing the glory of God. In John 17, as Rochelle read this morning, Jesus says that his work His mission was to make God's name known in the world. He came so that those who see Jesus would know who the Father was. And all who believe in him would have eternal life. Now, when we think of eternal life, we think of it differently than what Jesus defines it. Jesus in John 17 defines eternal life for us as this, to know God, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. So knowing God is what eternal life is. How can we know God? Well, the word of God reveals him to us, but again, we're unable to come to him because we have sin. There is a barrier standing in our way to knowing God truly. But Jesus removes that barrier. 
in Jesus' death and resurrection, that barrier is gone, and we now have access to the Father. So Jesus died so that sin would no longer have control over us, and he lives so that we would have life with him. But it's not just his death and resurrection, but our belief in them. You see, Jesus died and rose. That is a fact. Whether you believe it or not, it happened. And his death and his resurrection have power whether you believe it or not. But that power comes to you through belief. And that belief is a work of the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit gives life. And he is the one who awakens us to know God. So all who believe in God have the Holy Spirit. And if you are here today and you have not trusted in Christ, if you have not believed in his death and resurrection, I welcome you to do that. I encourage you to consider who Christ is and what his work on the cross did so that you would know God. I encourage you to dig into the word and pray that God would open your mind to know and understand it so that you would believe. You see, God has revealed his glory to the whole world in Jesus Christ. Now, his glory was revealed so we would know him. If he wanted to hide, he wouldn't have revealed it. Did you ever think about that? That if God didn't want to be known by humans, if he wanted nothing to do with us, why would he reveal himself? Through creation, through his word and through Jesus, why would God make himself known if he doesn't want us to know him? Oh, brothers and sisters, friends, God wants us to know him. That's why he reveals his glory. And so now we must respond to God's revelation. That's our last point for today, is that we must respond to God's revelation. And our initial response should be that we would know God. That is our first response, is that God reveals himself so that we would know him, but he also reveals himself so that we would worship him. See, just like I mentioned, when I see a sunrise or a sunset, I have to stand in awe of it. And not because the sun itself is glorious, but because it points to the glory of God. And that is what creation is. And so we worship God when we observe his glory. When we look at the skies, when we stand at the seashore, when we walk through the forests, we should worship God and be in awe of who he is. When we read his word and see more of who God is, we should admire him and desire him more in worship. And as we consider the person and work of Jesus Christ, that should lead our hearts to worship. This awe of God is why we sing here on Sunday mornings, It's because as we know more of God's glory, our hearts worship him. And as we worship him in our heart, we desire to sing with our mouths. Being in awe of God should motivate us to find joy in our suffering, to find peace in turmoil, and to find hope in impossible circumstances. Beholding God's glory leads us to worship. But what is worship? What does it mean? Well, in this psalm, David shows us two major components of worship that we normally don't think of. Normally, we think of worship as kind of the feelings that we have when when we see something nice or we behold God's glory. 
But David here shows us that worship includes repentance and obedience to God's word. Let's look at verse 12 first. Who perceives his unintentional sins? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. It seems that David knows that there are ways that he has sinned without even knowing that he was sinning. Have you ever been there? Yes, you should all be nodding right now. Yes, we've all done this. We all do some sort of sin without knowing it. And maybe later on you realize, oh, I lied, or oh, that was gossip, or that was lust. We all sin in ways that we don't even realize it in the moment, but then we turn back and look and say, oh, we sinned. Or maybe we never even realize it, but we should all know that there is sin hidden in us. The important thing here to know is that God knows. When we don't know, God does. And he stands ready to cleanse us in Jesus' name. And so we repent of the sins that we know, and we repent of the sins that we don't even know. And now, what does it mean to repent? It means to turn away from sin. It doesn't just mean saying the words, I repent. It doesn't mean having bad feelings, especially bad feelings because you got caught. Repenting is seeing your sin and saying, I don't want that. And you turn away from your sin, and you turn towards Jesus. And you turn to him and say, I want you more than I want the sin. David goes on to talk about a different kind of sin in verse 13. Moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule me. Then I will be blameless and cleansed from blatant rebellion. Willful sins. These are sins that we do knowingly. They're arrogant sins. They're prideful sins. Not necessarily the sin of pride, although that's there. But these are sins that we know what is wrong and yet we do it anyway. I'm reminded of a story that my friend told me many years ago when they had just one baby girl. And the mom was feeding her daughter by putting some Cheerios on a plate in front of her. And her daughter took the Cheerios and threw them on the floor. And of course, the mom put some more Cheerios and said, we don't throw on the floor. And she put some more and she threw more on the floor. And she looked at her daughter and said, Maddie, do not throw your cereal on the floor. What did Maddie do? She took the Cheerios and she held her hand out over the floor and she stared her mom in the face and opened her hand. And my friend said, that's when I knew my daughter was a sinner. (laughs) This is what we do. We see what is wrong. We know what is sin. And yet we look God in the face and say, I'm going to do it anyway. David here models how we repent of these willful sins. He says, do not let me do them. God, I know they are sins, and he is coming to God humbly, recognizing that he needs God's strength and his grace to stay away from these sins. He does not want to be ruled by them. And so, I'm not going to name sins for you. All of us know what things in our lives we are doing, even though we know it's sin. And yet, I'm encouraging you through this psalm to come to God and say, Lord, I know that this is sin. I know that I am doing this thing that is wrong and evil, and I want to stop. Would you help me by your grace? 
Let's look at how David models for us obedience in verse 14. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. See, David wants to obey God's command. He hears God's word, and now he wants his own words to be acceptable to God. He wants his own thoughts to be acceptable to God. He knows he needs to be transformed. It's not just the words he says, but the meditation of his heart needs to be acceptable. In Romans 12.1, the same language is learned is that we offer ourselves up as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. See, in this psalm, David is saying, by obeying God, I am worshiping him. When I behold God's glory, I should respond by worshiping God in obedience and in repentance. So to obey God's word, we must know it, right? We must spend time in his word. If we want to know more of Jesus because Jesus reveals God's glory to us, then we should spend more time Jesus. I know that new year is upon us, which means new resolutions. Who's going to lose 10 pounds this year, right? Who's going to work out at City Fit? Who's going to know God more? Who wants to resolve to know God more? To walk with him, to dwell with him. That should be our desire, brothers and sisters. And so in conclusion, we see from Psalm 19 that God reveals his glory so that we would know and worship him. He does this through creation, through his word, and through Jesus Christ himself. And so let me give you one final encouragement. These last three verses, they're a prayer. They are David's prayerful response as he reflects on God's revealed glory. So I encourage you to make this your prayer, to think about God's glory and then pray these last three verses. Pray them as they are. Repent of your sins and turn to God every day. Behold God's wonderful glory. Know him and worship him. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for revealing yourself to us Thank you for sending Jesus to do just that. And thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, for humble hearts, hearts that desire to obey, hearts that desire to repent. You know us, Lord. We pray that we would know you. We love you, Father. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.